Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast with the coolest merch. This week we have Laura and Lindsay. So we're going to start right where we left off at the end of the last episode. If you haven't listened to Religion on the Left Part 1, highly recommend you go back and listen to that now. Um, if you don't want to do that, we're just going to be jumping right back into our conversation with Erica and Lauren. Woo! How do you approach folks like me who have been so disillusioned and scarred by religion? Very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> with caution. Proceed with caution. With caution. <laughs> right. I don't say I'm married to a rabbi. As <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't. Oh, I often don't say that I'm in seminary either. Unless <laughs> I get asked point blank. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think actually a lot of what Lauren was saying earlier about story sharing and the power of personal story applies to this question too, that, you know, I am a firm believer that we are all spiritual beings. And I think that everybody, regardless of your affiliation to a faith community or a faith tradition or not, that everybody has a way that they are making sense of the world around them and of their connection to it. And, you know, those questions that Lauren was talking about earlier about, you know, that all faith traditions ask and have asked for thousands of years, who are we? What the heck are we doing here? What's this life about? Mm -hmm. Who are you? How am I connected to you? You know, why do all these things happen to both of us? All, everybody, every breathing human has a way that they're making sense of those questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those ways that they're making sense of those questions are dictated by the experiences that they've had. Um, so it's important to get to those stories in this conversation. Like, let's talk about how you're making sense of the world and why you're making sense of it that way. Um, you know, a lot of, I've learned a lot about how to, how to talk to people who are actively grappling with faith and their connection to it, sitting in AA meetings, to be honest, Mm -hmm. Mm um, that, you know, AA is a straight up religious spiritual process. Totally. Absolutely. And it is absolutely filled with people who are trying to heal their relationship with something that ultimately had at some point more power over their life, Mm. um, had more power over them than they did. Mm. And if that's not a sense of what God, then I don't know what is, right? So earlier when one of you was talking about your story, you talked about like, if this, if, if I, if, if God is really a loving God, and God would not want this for me. And I, and it just made me think of all the times I've sat in AA meetings and listened to people really struggle to believe that their higher power had their best interest at heart, loved mm-hmm. them, wanted them to succeed, wanted them to take care of themselves, wanted them to feel loved by the people around them. Mm-hmm. And I think like at core, that is the role that faith and religion can and does play for a lot of people. It helps us feel loved and held in times when we're really struggling. Unfortunately, it also gets co-opted to make people feel afraid and small when they're struggling Mm -hmm. (laughs) because afraid and small people are easy to control. Right. Um, But I don't think that that is the, I think that's a very small kind of faith. I believe in a bigger faith that believes that we are all more powerful. We are all better off when all of us feel powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that my power, my feeling grounded and powerful does not negate your ability to feel grounded and powerful. Mm-hmm. Sounds um, like you're sort of talking about fragile masculinity here. 
(laughs) Well, yes. Say more. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. No, No, sorry. I mean, it's because that is a, that's a belief too. It, It, you know, it's like, that is also a choice that men and some women make based on absolutely no evidence at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, in in a lot of ways, it's a very similar thing. It's a, it's a small minded faith. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking, Erica, I feel like you're, when you said, you know, my, my power, my feeling empowered is tied up in the, the fact that other people are in, are being able to stand in their own power feels to me like the inverse of my liberation is tied up in your liberation. Mm-hmm. I think those things, I almost see those two things as married, right? That that mm-hmm. liberation and liberation and empowerment and empowerment have to have to move together. Yeah. And they have to move together hand in hand. And that liberation is about empowerment and empowerment is also a part of liberation. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing I would add to this is you know, for people who are on the left who care about sort of, you know, integrating the ideas of critical theory into their lives. And it's really important to name that just because you're not, you don't ascribe to a particular faith does not mean that you don't have beliefs operating. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so almost as like a self-defense mechanism against cultural capitalism, <laughs> You know, you have to sort of get clear about what are the beliefs that are operating in my life. What do what what do I believe, and is and where is that belief coming from? First of all, do I agree with it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do I want to choose it for my life? Mm-hmm. And second of all, you know how how is it showing up in my behavior? Is it is it helping? mine and others liberation or is it actually perpetrating the problem totally and i love i'm just thinking of this now that a common socialist chant and also union chant is i believe that we will win Mm -hmm. (laughs) and even that you know you're putting out there in words in chant that you have faith that standing together in solidarity with one another in your power has the potential to create change, positive change um, in the way that we'd like to see it. So that's a really interesting and cool way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, <laughs> uh, how do you approach conversations with religious folks uh, or more traditionally religious folks Uh, Again, that's also problematic language, I understand, who are pushing agendas that you don't agree with. I'm particularly thinking of things like the religious right in the United States. Yeah, Lauren, you want to take this one first? Uh, I mean, I I think for me, even though it's a different situation than approaching people who've been hurt by religion or who aren't actively identifying as a as a religious person, I I think that the approach is often the same um, because I think that, I don't know, I've done a lot of thinking about people on the religious right because I, I personally struggle with this seeming hypocrisy between what people claim to believe theologically and then how they actually live out their lives. And, and for me, it's actually probably the opposite of what many of you are thinking because I've, I've worked a close colleague of mine identified as a, you know, conservative evangelical Christian. And yet he was one of the most like solid moral people in real life, as I witnessed him doing his work, who deeply cared about all levels and all experiences of the, the people he worked with, you know, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. And yet, theologically, he believed we were all going to hell on one level. And, and it was really, no, it was really difficult for me to wrestle with that because my experience of this person was that he, like, he was a person who understood what mattered when it came to, to being around people and challenging people to grow and learn and holding people accountable, but in a holding people accountable kind of in love 
Mm. Um, and really having grace most of the time and, and grace being, uh, you know, an understanding that like shit happens sometimes. And, and I forgive you for that. Right. I'm not going to hold you to absolute perfection in all things that you do. And, and I watched him work and I watched him like really transform over, over the years I worked with him. And yet when I thought about the theology of his faith community, I was like, this just does not add up to me. It doesn't <laughs> add up to me. How can really, how can someone who just postures himself day in and day out as someone who really cares about people that and like watches modern family and gets a total kick out of the the gay couple on modern family i'm like wait but how do you go to church every week and listen to this other stuff that seems to completely disagree with how you actually live out your life mm. and so that's what i mean by the opposite because i think that i don't know how to frame this but anyway i, I know exactly say. what you're saying you can think of i can think of like a thousand people in my own life who are like maybe not even the most faith practice people in their own lives. Like they just kind of like exist in their own bubbles and, you know, worship at the dogma of neoliberal capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe it's under the facade of Catholicism or whatever. But when it comes to actual texts and actual deeds of social change that are within those texts, like no no work is actually being done on that front. But it's like, it's this complete, they continue to go weekly to church, but then their actions really signify something completely that they're actually worshiping something completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. So anyway, back to your original question. I think that I think that not making assumptions about people in general whenever you encounter people is really important, especially especially if you know that they identify with something that might be contentious with something that you identify with. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really do believe, and I know we've mentioned it multiple times, but I really do believe in the power of telling your story and that despite our stories being deeply individualistic in the sense that they're experiences that happen only to us, I think our stories key people into common human experiences and that that then creates spaces for connection. And I know that isn't always the case, but but what I see in people who are unable to focus on on the pain and and have a compassionate response is because they're still afraid or they're still so uncertain at times. I, I it's so interesting because I find that the people who are actually the most uncertain in their own faith are the ones who are screaming that they know the truth. And, and that it's actually sometimes a fear of not knowing the right thing that makes them susceptible to an uncritical faith or mm-hmm. something that is just here, here, this is formulaic. It's all figured out for you. You know, if you do A, B, and C, you're good. And, and some people think sometimes it's personality. Sometimes I think it's how just people's brains work differently. I also think sometimes people just desire something that feels secure. And I don't think that that desire is a misplaced one. I think that that is something that we all experience at some point or another. But I have I have compassion for that uncertainty. And, and in the case of the person I was talking about, who was a deeply caring person and yet had these theological beliefs that, that didn't add up to that, I, I knew enough of his story to know where the pain and the uncertainty began, or at least in a way that his faith, because it offers answers, feels safe to him. And that is what allows me to have compassion for him and not feel that it's so important that we agree theologically. Because at least in that case, when it comes to, you know, what is the right thing to do in a situation for a person, I know that he and I would make the same decision. So if his theological beliefs make him feel safe, then that's okay. I think it's a little bit different in the situation that Laura talked about. And, you know, people who claim to be people of faith and yet act out their lives in a very selfish way. And side note, we're talking a lot about like faith and action. And and one of the things I've learned a lot in my studies in seminary and elsewhere is that most of that has to do with what people believe about salvation and what people believe about heaven and hell. And, um, 
And some traditions believe that it's only faith, that you just have to believe and then you're fine, um, which I find deeply problematic. And other people believe it's just what you do and not what you what you believe in. And like most things that are on two sides of a spectrum, um, you know, either end is very problematic, but usually a common ground in the middle can be, can be more life-giving, I think, to most people. And I, w- I won't go into all the formulas of salvation that I've learned, <laughs> even though I, I don't really... I don't believe in salvation in the in the traditional sense that, you know, oh, I'm saved and therefore I'm going to heaven and it's all good. That's not helpful for me. And I don't think that's helpful for a lot of people. But yeah, I think for a lot of people that I encounter, there's a certain level of fear or uncertainty or pain and just honoring that in whatever way it manifests, I find is the best, the best way. And also not having an agenda. Mm-hmm. I think that certainly when I encounter people who I know identify as conservative Christians. I'm always worried like, oh my God, if I tell them that I'm in seminary, they're going to have an agenda or they're going to be like, oh, what seminary are you going to? And they'll be like, oh, you're going to that seminary. Oh my God. And like run away from me because <laughs> they think I might hate them or something. Um, but I think it's important on the flip side, you know, as leftist people that we also don't have an agenda because I think having an agenda People can perceive that even when it's not verbally mm. expressed. And then people feel like they, they can't trust you because you have they can tell like, okay, this person is wanting something from me. And I think that can really shut off any kind of common understanding that could be found in a conversation between two people like that. So as this is a socialist podcast... How might theology help us understand the impacts of capitalism? Or what might theology have to say about capitalism and its current impact? Oh, theology has so much to say. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of those places where it's, I think, really critical to look at and differentiate between what religious and spiritual traditions include and teach and have as part of their history and how those traditions have been interpreted and used and you know the behavior of their institutions because actually you know every faith tradition I have ever encountered has some pretty amazingly radical things to say about how the economy should work. You know, things like the Bible, very, you know, the first five books of the Bible include instructions about how to have a jubilee year so that every 50 years, all debt is canceled and people in the community get essentially to start over economically. Mm. All wealth is redistributed Um, because there was an acknowledgement that after about 50 years, like, you know, human beings who being who they are, like things get wonky and some people end up with more and some people end up with less. And sometimes that's for completely random reasons. And sometimes it's for unethical reasons. Mm -hmm. And so the way the Bible deals with that is to say, look, every 50 years we start over. End of story. Mm -hmm. Um, And that sort of idea, that cycle of kind of needing to understand that things get out of balance and we need to bring them back is sort of reflected at, you know, the yearly cycle, at least in the Jewish calendar, there's the the holiday of Yom Kippur has as part of it a whole piece of liturgy that that says, you know, anything that I get into over the next year that is really over my head. I'm acknowledging now that I will need to be forgiven from it a year from now. (laughs) So there's this acknowledgement that like this stuff, you know, this economic stuff gets out of whack, these kinds of commitments and debts and ambition and whatever, like we get into stuff we can't handle and that we need sort of a way to start over. The weekly cycle has a whole, you know, sab the Sabbath, Shabbat in Judaism, is an incredibly radical concept. This idea that we don't control time. When sundown comes on Friday night, you are done working. And everybody who works for you 
is also including your animals in the Bible <laughs> is done working mm-hmm. and that they get to rest for 25 hours and you shall do no work during that time. And it's not up to you when it stops or when it starts and when it stops. It's up to the sun, right? It, it starts at sundown on Friday and, you know, you can work again an hour after sundown on Saturday. But that's a really radical concept because capitalism teaches us that actually it's our job to dominate time and make it as efficient as possible, Mm -hmm. to fill it with as much productivity as we can, to milk it for whatever money we can get from it. Mm -hmm. And theology, you know, different religious traditions that have a high, a sense of higher power, a sense of spirituality, a, a sense of, you know, even of earth cycles, acknowledge that actually we are small pieces of a much larger system, the majority of which we don't control. Right. And that that living within that requires an enormous amount of humility. Mm. And that is not, that is diametrically opposed to the lesson that capitalism tries to teach us. Yes, that's an incredible way to think about it. And I have not given any thought to those radical pieces. So I'm really stoked to hear all about that. So thank you. Yeah, there, there's just so much. I mean, we obviously could go on for hours about, <laughs> about all this stuff, as we already have been. But uh, right. But, <laughs> You get a bunch of like clergy type people talking and we just don't stop. That's amazing. No, I'm so glad this is beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, kind of going off of that, how can faith-based organizing strengthen socialist organizing? It just can. (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying I should just have faith that it can or something? (laughs) No, I mean, here's the thing. I think we have to understand that the the history of most justice movements in 20th century could not have happened without faith communities. It's a pet peeve of mine that so many people refer to Dr. Martin Luther King and even more common, just Martin Luther King, and don't talk about him as having a doctorate or as having being an ordained pastor. Um, And so I make a point whenever I talk about him to talk about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. and use his full name, because I think that that honors the traditions, both the academic and faith tradition that informed his life. And that really formed him to be redundant, but formed him for the work that he did as a faith leader. And that that's just an example that is so commonplace. But I, I don't think you can ever state enough the power that the civil rights movement had at that time in history and that that power still echoes through today. And I think so much of us that do justice work, think about how did they make it happen? What tools, what practices, what strategies worked? How can we replicate that, but then also replicate those strategies, but then also tweak them to to today's world? And so I haven't done a whole lot of thinking about the difference between faith-based organizing and socialist organizing, because I, I just don't, I think this day and age, it's so important to not get caught up in our own silos. And I think that organizing is organizing. And if we want to affect the kind of change that is so needed in the world right now, and especially in the United States, mm-hmm. the, the faith community needs to be working with more just secular political organizations. And, you know, the environmental advocates need to be working with Black Lives Matter a- activists. And I, I, I think what I could specifically offer to this question is that I think the, the practices of community that, that faith-based organizations can do well sometimes i think that would be the thing that can potentially inform for instance socialist organizing because if you don't have a solid community if you don't have practices of communicating that allow you to call each other out when something is said that is hurtful to someone else and i think laura i remember you talking really early on in the podcast about an experience of being in socialist spaces and not being 
respected as a woman Mm -hmm. and how was it that you you develop a kind of signal of like putting your fists in the air or something like that yeah every time that we were interrupted right and and I think that you know for instance like just the practice of eating meals together can be so transformative Because it gives people the time to sit down where they're usually not distracted by other things. And maybe there isn't a clear topic of what they're talking about. But most people are able to talk to each other when they're sitting down to eat in a natural way. And so I, I, if I had one answer to that at the moment, I think I would talk about that. And that also the foundation of community also allows for resiliency, both within that community and then when that community is faced with, I don't know, forces from the outside that threaten it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) like if you think about, I think just to Lauren's point about every resistance movement, every, every social movement in this country's short history really had a base of faith, community, clergy, people at its helm. I, I mean, I think that that practice is very essential to many, many faith traditions. Faith traditions really are, if you think about the work of Jesus, if you think about Moses, like the tradition that comes within faith communities is often one of standing up to some kind of earthly power, some kind of empire, Mm -hmm. and saying, we don't accept you as the ultimate authority. And we don't accept this situation as the only way things can be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, back to the classic biblical story of Moses in Egypt saying, let my people go. I don't accept mm-hmm. you as my God, Pharaoh. You know, and in some ways you could imagine Moses saying, because God would not enslave my people the way you have enslaved my people. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, like, I do not accept you as the authority. My authority is a higher authority that loves and cares for people in a different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in a similar way, Dr. Martin Luther King. Yes, I was just going to say that. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, you know, and many others, I would say, you know, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel says, Mm -hmm. said the same thing. People who stood up to Hitler you know, mm-hmm. really like critical Christian and Jewish and Muslim clergy all saying the same thing. I do not accept you as my authority. I have a higher authority that tells me that what you're doing is wrong, that racism is wrong, that heteropatriarchy is wrong, that these economic practices are wrong. I, I think that in this moment and when it comes to socialist organizing, we, you know, we almost have less of a need to stand up to the political powers that be and much more of a need to stand up to the economic powers that yes. be. But mm-hmm. with the same sort of religious fervor, we need to say, I don't accept you as the authority. I don't accept the way that you measure value and worth. I won't allow monetary figures to to dictate what I understand as precious and holy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe fervently that there is another way of understanding value and worth than the way we are doing it now in a capitalist society. Yeah. And people will think you're crazy and... <laughs> And you are, right? People because already think have... that. It's totally fine. Right, because because <laughs> you have no evidence of to show right. them. Right. But that is a choice. That is a faith then. And I think that there is a lot to be gained from leftist. Leftist movements have a lot to learn from faith communities, radical faith communities, about mm-hmm. how they have done that for mm-hmm. generations. And it's it's in my mind, a a completely natural ally to have in the work of completely radicalizing economic systems. Yeah. I feel like we're going to have to have y'all back on the show to have a conversation (laughs) about laws specifically and how laws can amplify that hierarchy and then what role do laws play in our lives. But um, (laughs) I feel like we'll go way down the rabbit hole if we start that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
But we we should do an episode on that as well. Mm-hmm. Lindsay is training to be a lawyer, so it's all wrapped into nice. into that as well. I'll have much more to contribute to that, but yes, it's been just always like listening to you guys talk. (laughs) And there's so much, there's so much to correlate too between interpretation of either biblical laws or sacred laws and interpretation of governmental societal laws. Um, Because so much, so much is the interpretation. Yes. Uh, and the translation of those of those you know documents or understandings right and um, who has the power when those things are being disseminated right exactly, exactly. yeah so <laughs> we are really running out of time <laughs> <laughs> so i guess like as briefly as you can while still being true to yourself what is your least favorite thing and you know please go into your own definitions or qualms with how i phrase this what is your least favorite thing working in the theological field? Uh, and then we can go to favorite and end on that. <laughs> the same thing that is my least favorite thing about working in any institutional setting, yeah. right? It's like yeah. people are people and men are men mm-hmm. and they like to talk a lot and they like to state things as if they are the truth. Yeah. And that makes them feel better about the world, even though we all know that there is very, very little that we know to be absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that just people like running their their shit everywhere like that. <laughs> yes. But but that's like true in any yeah. kind of instance. Like I worked in the in the leftist organizational world. I ran an organization for 10 years here in San Francisco, in San Francisco, like the bubble of the Bay Area, you know, and, and it was just as true there, like, for sure, for sure, and needed to be in charge, they needed to hear themselves, they needed to feel like everybody was like praising them, blah, blah, blah. Um, (laughs) And so there's just a lot of like, my mentor used to say to me, like, organizing would be so easy if it weren't for the damn people. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. One other piece I would add that I've experienced is not only sexism, but ageism. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I think this is true in any institution, but not being valued for my talents and skills and experience or taken seriously because I look young and because it right. looks like I haven't had decades of wisdom when in fact, in my, you know, shorter life than many of these people, I've probably lived through just as much shit as people who are in their 60s and even older. But that's not assumed or respected. What's assumed often is that I'm this young, naive, idealistic, energetic person that doesn't understand the wisdom of doing things right and taking the time to sort things out when that's just not true about me. Um, Lauren, didn't you know that in order to be wise, you have to be an old white man with a beard? Like, that's it. (laughs) With no hair. Duh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's not always helpful to just point out white men and characterize them as somewhat evil because there are a lot of incredible older white men with beards that understand these things and that put give the mic to other people and say I'm not the authority on this you are and I respect your authority and so I think it's important to hold that as well but um (laughs) but yes obviously patriarchy hurts women and hurts men and I think we're seeing that you know more and more and um so what is your favorite thing about working in the theological field I love the moral authority you're just like there's not there's no conversation stopper like well God says (laughs) 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 Um, or the Bible says no I I actually you know we're in this weird moment where like I feel like we've had this like really long rationalist moment Mm. um you know that started oh I don't know in the early 1800s um 
where we just started to say things like, oh, science explains everything. And so there are answers to all of these questions we've been wondering about. And it's just gotten progressively worse as we got into the 1900s. And, you know, people really believed that science can explain everything, that there are answers. You know, I like to remind people when I when they start talking about science, like my foster son does, that people have a lot of evidence for the earth being flat, too. Um, <laughs> And they they really believed it. And it was, you know, but I I do feel like for a variety of reasons, the the hold of our rationalist culture is really loosening. And people even who are not religious are starting to say, oh, maybe there are things we just don't know the answer to, or that we can't know the answer to and so there's again like I feel like this very small opening of willingness in our culture to say like wow maybe there are maybe there's just some open-ended question maybe this is sort of like a choice or belief and I really love being in theology in this moment because I feel like there is this potential to say you know yes, these questions are theological questions, right? Like Mm -hmm. these questions that science has claimed to be able to answer for years and years are actually the same ones that theologians of all different shapes and stripes have been asking for thousands of years. And there's all of this spiritual tradition and all of this spiritual wisdom that really makes our lives better makes our understanding of our of our time on this earth just more substantive and helps us really navigate and make meaning of the time that we have here and and so i that's exciting to me to like point out you know oh these questions are are theological questions and let me share with you what i've learned about all the different ways that crazy people have made sense of these questions and it gives me hope that maybe we would allow some of this uh, some of our spiritual teachers some of our you know some of our faith teachers to have the same kind of authority and in weighing into these critical questions as we do scientists or economists or politicians that maybe we are in a moment when that kind of belief could hold just as much power as somebody who was presenting a bunch of charts and graphs, which has not been the case for many, many decades. And I like being in theology in this moment because of, because of that shift. I think for me, it, on the one hand, it has to do with the people. And I know that Erica said a mentor of hers you know, said organizing would be so easy if it weren't for the people. But I also think that the people are, for me, some of the best is the people I get to work with is one of the best parts of being in this field. I think this conversation is case in point. I get to have conversations like this all the time with colleagues and and friends who are doing their own work in, in these areas Um, and who really inspire me and and help shape me. But getting, for me, getting to work with these incredibly resilient young people day in and day out who have so much wisdom of their own when they have the opportunity to, to examine that or process that wisdom or share that wisdom, that's just always just really almost gives me the shivers and sometimes does give me the shivers, sometimes does make me just start tearing up because I feel like I'm witnessing this just incredible moment. And then I think the thing that one other thing is that I don't have to have all the answers. And that's something that, again, that I think goes back to that experience in confirmation class sophomore year of high school was that I felt that it was totally okay for me to say, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know what I believe about that. That's a really good question. And as I continue to step into the role more and more of a role as a visible faith leader, I find that that can be a more profound response than me having an explanation. Yes. Um, Yes. And for me to be able to say to this youth that is like telling me, yeah, I, I realize that I've never felt safe. I don't, I can't remember a time in my life where I didn't have my hackles up. I can't remember. And for me to be able to 
just heap love onto that person and that experience, but also be able to say, there is no reason I could possibly give you to explain that. Right. I can't. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know why you've had to experience that, but here's what I do know. And here's what I do believe. And I do believe that that is not the end of your story. And that I am going to do everything in my power to help you heal from that if that's what you want. And that, again, like this isn't the end of the story. And it's okay. I think one of the best things to me about working in the world of faith is that there's profound mystery, right? We keep talking about, well, we don't have all the answers or science says that it has all the answers. But there's some profound mystery. And and one of the images or concepts I think about is that, you know, pieces of atoms can be split and yet they resonate with the Mm -hmm. same frequency distances and distances apart. And that, I don't know if we'll ever be able to explain that. I think Mm -hmm. we can observe that it's a phenomenon that happens, but I don't think we can explain why. And that's okay. I think it's okay for things to not have an answer and for there to be mystery that can unfold at its own time and, and space. I don't want to mess up your faith journey, Lauren, but that sounds very Jewish. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm like half Jewish and like half Unitarian and like half. I know. <laughs> and yet I'm in the UCC. So let's explain that one. <laughs> Semantics. Like, it's, you know. <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. Yes. The Jews would claim you at any point, though. It's okay. <laughs> As I speak for all the Jews, we would. Yes. <laughs> yes. I feel like you can. That's totally fine. (laughs) This has been an absolute, absolute pleasure. We haven't had any sort of episodes like this, and I think uh, it's really fascinating and really interesting to hear what y'all have been doing and, you know, your perspectives on on these issues. So thank you both so, so much for spending your Saturday afternoon talking with us for a few hours. Thank you. You're welcome. Good luck cutting this down. Good luck cutting this down to an hour. There's no way that's happening. This is going to be two episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Two for one. Yes, two for one. Thank you both so much.
for the second half of this episode, we have a new, very special guest. She's coming with us all the way from Chicago. <laughs> Welcome to Season of the Bitch. It's Ambria. <laughs> Thank you for your culturally inclusive pronunciation of Chicago. Oh, you're welcome. I've learned from the best. <laughs> <laughs> so as you know, this is an episode on religion and the left. And we've spoken with Lauren and Erica about their path in this. And I've shared my story and Lindsay shared her story. And let's start with if you have any story about like your religious story, your faith story, whatever that is. Okay, my family was, is not really anymore, was non-denominational Christian. Uh, my dad still identifies with Christianity, and so does my little brother. The rest of us are kind of agnostic slash atheists. I probably fall more into the agnostic camp, uh, and my older brother is probably more of an atheist. But yeah, I don't know. We went to like some evangelical churches when I was a little kid. I have some memories of believing in Jesus or I don't know, however a little kid believes in something, you know. Right. It, it didn't really feel very real at the time even. But uh, my older brother likes to bring up like how he said that I was kind of obsessed with it when I was like four or five. He's much older than me. Mm. And he, he always likes to imitate me by saying, baby Jesus, baby lamb. <laughs> he says that I'd always be like, Dan, his name's Dan, Dan baby Jesus, baby lamb. And I would like ask him if he had accepted Jesus Christ into his heart (laughs) as his Lord and Savior. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But uh, later on, we weren't as church going. Well, that's amazing. I mean, I think. Oh, wait. Mm -hmm. We were briefly involved with a cult for a moment. What I I would classify as a cult. It was called heart maneuvers. Anyway. (laughs) I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm very curious about this. Do you want to tell us more? I don't know, man. It was wild. I was like eight and we were living in Juliet because I moved around a lot and we went to this church for a while. And, um, you know, all the churches we had gone to like did a lot of like the speaking in tongues and, and stuff like that and dancing and, you know, casting out the demons from people and like them fainting and people catching them, you know. I don't, um, I don't know. You don't know about that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know how, how it is for everyone, right? Uh, <laughs> there was actually one time in a different church, this big evangelical church. I have this like very distinct memory from when I was like five, where this little girl started choking on a piece of hard candy during the sermon. And this is like a mega church. Mm-hmm. And as they like were escorting her away to the bathroom to give her the Heimlich maneuver, the pastor was like, do you see? Do you see what the devil does to try to keep us away from the word of the Lord? (laughs) He's like screaming about how the devil is trying to choke this little girl. Oh my God. (laughs) That wasn't even the cult. That's pretty fucked up. The cult told me, I've told some people this story. The cult told me that I was a prophet, the one that we were in when I was like eight, I guess because I was a precocious kid. Uh, Mm. And they were giving me like special Bible study lessons for a while while we were there. We eventually left the church and they like sent my mom this threatening letter about how she was going to be like eaten by demons in hell (laughs) for leaving the church. They were super weird. They were super weird. And they, the the preacher had like a rock band that he was like the leader of. Amazing. He was like the lead singer and guitarist. And, you know, they would give us a concert on Sundays. This church was incredibly weird. Uh, they were doing some weird shit. There was like, I don't know. Anyway, I don't have anything else to say. No, that's amazing. I, I will. If anybody wants to get a drink and talk about this more, it's hilarious. Um, I don't feel very traumatized by it. It's more like a really fun story to tell. See, that's that's what's up. Like, Lindsay and I shared deeply traumatic stories. You know, Erica did to a certain extent as well. And it's interesting because I think that like has really shaded I mean for Erica like her approach to continuing down that path in a different trajectory than what she was raised in and then for me and Lindsay it's more like just abandoning it (laughs) 
mm-hmm. and going to years of therapy. So thank you for sharing. We, we appreciate that. And I know that you had some specific communities that you wanted to talk about as it relates to the connections between leftism and religion or leftism and faith. Yes, absolutely. Oh, another side nugget. I found out I'm Jewish. <laughs> On my mom's side, there was some Judaism going on. I haven't really wrestled with that one yet. I've been to a couple of Shabbats. I don't even know how to say the words right, so it's hard to... Anyway. I think it's Shabbat, but I don't know. Shabbat. But I I mean, I should not be trusted. I'm not a trusted person. I don't trust you. (laughs) Yeah, but what I really want to talk about, I kind of didn't think about religion for a long time. um, And I started getting involved with activism. And I was really impressed by some of the leftists I met that were religious. Mm. And a lot of the like, really good work that they were doing. And I was randomly out of Powell's and I pick up picked up this book, Religion and War Resistance in the Plowshares Movement. Mm. And this is about a movement that was started by some Catholic leftists, including Daniel and Philip Berrigan, who are probably the most famous people that were involved with this movement. I mean, it's an anti-war movement that involved actions in which they would, you know, many actions across many years where they would destroy sometimes like nuclear warheads or like pieces of mm. of bombs mm. uh, and other things like that. The most famous instance of this was probably towards the beginning, I think in the in the 60s, um, where the Berrigan brothers broke into like the headquarters where all the draft information was kept, mm. like people's actual draft cards back, you know, that's how they have to use, they used to have to actually have just like physical <laughs> files right, <laughs> to draft right. people with. Um, and they, they broke in and they dragged just tons of these files out into the parking lot, had gotten actual napalm and poured napalm all over them and set them on fire. <laughs> Yeah, fucking awesome. (laughs) And this is like these priest brothers. And one of them was a poet. And like in a lot of like their many trials, which they tried to invoke international law to like defend themselves, they told they would often deliver also these poems that are really moving. Mm. And I was just like super moved by just the moral certitude that these people show. Like I picked up this book and I could not put it down. Mm. Uh which is rare for a nonfiction book. I'm usually trying to put them down constantly and like fighting myself. But I was actually shocked about, I learned from this book about just the sheer magnitude of the U.S.'s nuclear arms. I'm going to read you an excerpt here really quick. In Colorado alone, 49 nuclear missiles had recently been refitted and they each had 300 kilotons of explosive power or roughly 25 to 30 times the destructive capacity of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Oh my God. This was, she was talking about, the author was talking about, I think sometime in like the year, around the year 2000 while Bush was president. So that was just in Colorado. There were 49 nuclear missiles. And so if you try to think about like how many nuclear warheads we have across the entire United States, I don't think I ever realized that. For a long time, I just kind of thought maybe we had like two nuclear bombs in a, you know, in a desert somewhere. It's really crazy. George Bush wanted us to put them in a mountain, but a desert also works. (laughs) That sounds so much like a cartoon villain place to store your nuclear arms in a mountain. We'll just put the nuclear waste in mountains. I I fucking remember when that show was going on. I was like, my mom, I remember my mom somehow like, being like, I think it would be safe there. I'm like, are you serious? I mean, like, I was young, but I was like, no. <laughs> no, it will not. We're talking about nuclear shit here. <laughs> but I guess something that struck me was that the plowshares movement is called that because it refers to this verse in the Bible about, th- like, throwing down. I. It, it's in weird old-timey language. I don't know, but... Plowshares has something to do with like a directive from God saying not to do violence unto one another Mm. um, and that, you know, we have to lay down our swords and stuff like that. So like their anti-war resistance is directly connected to their religious practice. And I think that was cool for me to see and an important part of my development as an organizer slash activist to see like what ways that religion could directly inform a leftist Mm. perspective or practice. Absolutely. In a similar vein, 
We had someone, a little listener named Kyle, write us after this first half of the of this religion and left episode dropped, telling us about these Catholic workers, Jessica Resnick and Ruby Montoya, who were part of the No Dapple movement um, and were ultimately arrested for their nonviolent direct action. And he explains a lot of what the Catholic worker movement is. But what that also made me think of, um, and which we'll kind of get into more a little bit in a moment, is we've really been focusing on a Judeo-Christian connection to the left. And when I read this email from Kyle and, you know, he spoke about the Catholic workers, part of the no dapple movement. It made me think like if we're really talking about faith and spirituality and religion in these broad terms, like many of the indigenous communities involved in no dapple are spiritual Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. in, you know, in a lot of ways can be considered a leftist religion movement, you know, like there, there were ceremonies, there were a lot of things going on that I think were not only cultural, but spiritual. So I think it's really important to take a step outside of our Judeo-Christian bubbles, which are, it's really easy to get into in the United States. And while it's, you know, the work of these two women, while I'm like happy to know about the Catholic workers movement and, you know, these two badass women, it made me really like stop and be like, well, all of the people who were standing in solidarity, all the indigenous folks that were standing in solidarity with one another were, you know, in a lot of ways creating a spiritual act. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. My brain just like was like. (laughs) I love it when your brain makes that sound. I know. It's super cool. Super cool. So an angry kitty. Yes. So the reason why I was starting to kind of think down that rabbit hole is we, we spoke a lot with our guests about the work of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, while I'm not trying to diminish his work in any way, the conversation of Malcolm X as a religious leader never came up. And I just want to, first of all, acknowledge that and then, you know, create a space where we can speak about Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam and Black nationalism. Mm-hmm. I actually had a really interesting experience uh, when I worked in a prison in Ohio, either last summer or the summer before, I think. I think it was the summer before. And I was really surprised that, you know, we talked about religious breakdown in the prison. And there's like a, a pretty significant portion of the population that is specifically Islamic, like because they were converted through the works of Malcolm X and his story of becoming an activist is really rooted also in his experience in prison. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why so many people in prison are inspired by him and why so many black men in prison specifically, I would say, are inspired by him. And I found that really surprising and interesting. And it was like a big learning moment for me. Absolutely. A lot of people think of, you know, when speaking about the nation of Islam, they refer to Christianity as the white man's religion, specifically in the context of slavery, you know, it was forced on African Americans during the slave experience. And people believe that Islam was closer to African roots and identity. And so I feel like even though he wasn't a, I don't know what the equivalent of a reverend in Islam would be. He certainly spoke a lot about how influential his religion was to him. And particularly, it actually moved him away from some of his earlier thoughts that he had. If you read his autobiography, which you should, it's really amazing. I would say that it's kind of broken up into three parts. And a lot of people think that Malcolm X you know, was staunchly anti-white, which, first of all, anyone has the right to be, and we should, like, understand that anger. But through his understanding of Islam, he started to come to a recognition for himself of common struggle, and he had more empathy in ways that his earlier rhetoric didn't have. Again, not saying that empathy is at all deserved, but... (laughs) I think the reason why I'm saying that is because I think people like give Malcolm X shit and I like hate that because I'm like, just think about like lynching for a fucking second. 
And if you don't think that people deserve to be so angry, I don't know. I just get really mad about that. So I just want to be clear that like, <laughs> I want to be really clear on that. But we, we support righteous anger here on Season of the Day. <laughs> yes. So, you know, he he has a couple quotes. He would say that America needs to understand Islam because this is the one religion that erases from its society the race problem. Throughout my travels in the Muslim world, I have met, talked to, even eaten with people who in America would have been considered white. But the white attitude had been removed from their minds by the religion of Islam. Which I think is really powerful because it also in a in kind of an amazing way like puts it on white people it's like this is on you like it's your attitude that's creating this problem mm-hmm. and he found that when people practiced islam that 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 attitude in his words went away yeah it's interesting because i think a lot of times the idea that we as white people have of like wanting black people to accept us or not be angry or things like that is all very much focused on like what the other person needs to do and not about us sort of earning that from them. Of course. Yeah. You know, there's, it's, it's not really the question of like, Oh, what should I do to be accepted by black people? It's always sort of this assumed acceptance. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I also want to be clear that I am not a Malcolm X expert. I wish that I was. Um, And so I don't feel super comfortable speaking at length about his role in that. But I I did feel like his voice and his perspective was missing from our earlier conversation. Awesome. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Can I say one more thing about the Berrigans that I left out? Oh, my God. Yeah, of course. Okay. In case like you weren't already moved to go look them up. So another thing, and, and many of the people involved with this movement, by the way, spent a long, 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 long time in prison. There's actually a breakdown in this book that I mentioned before that talks, that compares, because the movement was international in some respects, and it compares the prison sentences that people got here in the United States of like 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. um, which of course you don't serve that entire time when you get sentenced to 20 or 30 years, but you serve a lot. You know, people were punished for the same things like in Sweden with like five years of prison. Mm. But anyway, if you weren't already moved to look them up, another thing that they were super famous for was that they would, leading up to an action, they would collect their own blood over time and like store it in bottles um, and slowly draining blood out of themselves. And then they would go break into facilities and like splash their blood all over like instruments of war, whether it was like nuclear warheads or in one case they broke onto like this naval ship um, that was going to be delivering some payload, deadly weapons, and like smashed up all of the control panels and poured their own blood all over the dashboards oh that God. control the ship. <laughs> and like we're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of damage done with their own blood. And, you know, they have all these really amazing poetic writings and speeches about how if people could see like the very real blood and violence that these things represent, they would see it differently. Mm, For sure. Anyway. And what's the title of the book? It is Religion and War Resistance in the Plowshares Movement. And it is by Sharon Erickson Nepstad. I still have the sticker on it from Powell's. It was $3.95 and it was the best $4 I ever spent. (laughs) Amazing. Sorry. I, I didn't mean to have you like overdo it, but just so that people know. Yes. I'm sorry for pointing out that I said it earlier. No, no, sorry. That might have come off. (laughs) I'm not accusing you of not listening to me. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry. The lizard people. The lizards. <laughs> insist that we not apologize. <laughs> it's true. It's really true. Um, <laughs> You're teaching us to be such good feminists. The yeah. lizard people are excellent feminists. Yeah, for sure. Well, on that note, <laughs> let's close this bitch out. All right. So that's our show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our very lovely guests earlier. And thanks to our very special guest, Ambria, here. You are uh, so very welcome. Yes. 
really appreciate it. As always, you can reach us on Twitter at Season of the Bee. We're on Facebook and Instagram also under that name. If you are a non-cis man and you want to send us your music, you can do so at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. And if you have thoughts like Kyle's, which really inform our discussion, you can also send that our way. It's super helpful and awesome. We have new merch up on the website. It's new merch, new merch, new, new merch, new merch. It's so good. And I'm so fucking excited. You need to check it out. We've been hyping it for a fucking month. So get your asses to the internet season of the B.com. Yes, please go. They're so good. I love them. I, I, you know, it's been really exciting whenever I've gone to like a DSA event or something and I see somebody wearing a sweatshirt with the season of the bitch on it. Yes. I just want to say I'm so excited to see this one out there. Yes. Very, very exciting. <sighs> so good. Um, please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes and give us your money on Patreon. <laughs> We love it. We love it, it when you do that. Because then we can keep making merch. <laughs> you know, going to a union shop is expensive. Like, we support the union shop for sure. Oh, my God. Like... <laughs> okay, cool. These um, damn living wages <laughs> costing us so much money. It's worth anyway, it. Anyway, donate worth it. today. <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. Hashtag worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> Okay, I love you, Ambria. Thanks for being a super special unions. guest. Okay, love you. <laughs> support, we support uh, unions. We swear. Right. Okay. <laughs> love, love you. Bye. bye.